You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. On May 9th, 2017, Deputy Jeffrey Stowell arrived at a house in Tallahassee, Florida to take a report from a man named Peter Turney. Peter explained that he had been driving his mother's 2006 silver Toyota Camry when he stopped at a local duplex to meet a friend. From there, a couple of guys from that residence took his car without his permission. They had driven him to his house and demanded he go inside and get them money, but he was able to call 911 instead. The men had left the area by the time the deputy got there, so Peter wanted to report the car stolen. Oh, and there was also a dead body in the trunk. This is Monsters. Paige was born on April 18, 1989, and was adopted by the Bartons at some point in her life. Not much is known about her early life, but she attended the same high school as a young man named Corey Vowell, who was a few grades above her. Corey started off as a good kid, getting good grades and playing soccer, but in his teens he started doing drugs and getting into trouble. Not long after the two started dating, they ran off to Panama City together and soon Paige was pregnant. They had a quick marriage at the courthouse, and Corey's parents were shocked when he called and told them that he was married and would soon be a father. Eventually, after their son was born in December of 2006, they moved into a loft apartment that was built in the back of Corey's parents' house. He tried to keep his life together, working as an electrician, but drugs and alcohol led to him being fired. Then he decided to end his life by slitting his wrists. He was rushed to the hospital where he survived his wounds. Once back home, things only got worse. Corey and Paige eventually got their own place, but the drug use caused continual problems. Arrests, car accidents, you name it. In 2015, the couple went to a party and got into a fight where Corey ended up stabbing a guy. He was charged with attempted murder and ended up pleading guilty to aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. While Corey served his time, Paige continued her life of drugs and illegal activity. Eventually, she and Corey got divorced and his parents gained custody of their son. Patrick Bahrain was born on May 24, 1995 and seemed to quickly get into a life of drugs and crime. He had dated a woman named Ashley Schmitz for about four and a half years and during that time the couple lived together at her home. Patrick liked guns and he owned several, but when the couple broke up on April 2nd of 2017 and he moved out, he didn't have a place to keep his long guns. Since the breakup was fairly cordial, Ashley told Patrick that she would store his long guns for him until he found a permanent residence. 
Patrick took multiple handguns with him when he moved out of her place, and the long guns stayed there. Just over a month later, on May 8th, Patrick called Ashley and told her a friend was coming by to pick up the rest of his guns. At about 8 p.m., Stanley West and Vicki Strickland showed up, and despite Ashley asking them to wait in the hallway while she got the guns, they followed her into the bedroom anyway. Ashley described Vicky as quote-unquote geeking as if she were on drugs, probably because she was. Anyway, Stan and Vicky wrapped two rifles in a blanket and then placed them in a black duffel bag before leaving the residence. This situation that Ashley described as sketchy worried her. She texted Patrick after Stan and Vicky left, writing, quote, I don't know what's going on. Whatever's happening, you need to get out of the situation. That was sketchy as shit. They were so fucked up, I swear I thought they were going to shoot me. You were better than all of that. Get out of there. She texted him the following day to tell him she was worried about him, but he never responded to any of her messages. Like many drug-addicted parents, Paige Vowell prioritized drugs over her child. She began dating a man named Paige Briggs, who was also a drug-addicted criminal. Paige was addicted to painkillers, and on May 9th, she contacted her friend, Hoyt Burge, and told him she needed pills. He agreed to bring some pills to Paige Briggs' house, which was a duplex on Mission Road. He owned the duplex and lived in one side while renting out the other. At some point that day, Stan and Vicky arrived at the residence to deliver the guns to Patrick and, I can assume, hang out with their friends. The same day, Peter Turney was hanging out with a friend when, that afternoon, he got a call from Hoyt who asked him if he had any blues. Blues are a slang term for prescription painkillers. Peter was in possession of the drugs, and Hoyt asked him if he could buy some from him cheap so he could resell them to Paige for a profit. Peter agreed, and Hoyt asked him to meet him at the duplex on Mission Road. At the residence, Peter showed up first, and soon after, Hoyt pulled up in a gold Ford Explorer with two other occupants. Hoyt and Peter walked up to the front of the duplex while their friends all waited in the vehicles outside. Upon entering the right side of the duplex, things immediately turned violent. Peter described seeing two women on the couch in the living room. They were Paige Vowell, who Hoyt was supposed to be delivering drugs to, and Vicki Strickland. Quickly after entering the living room, Patrick Borain, David Howard, Paige Briggs, and Stanley West entered the room, all brandishing firearms, according to Peter. Peter would also say in his interview that someone named Corey was there, but Corey Vowell was in prison, serving a three-year sentence for the assault with a deadly weapons charge and couldn't have been there. I couldn't find any other person named Corey mentioned anywhere else. Paige Briggs was paranoid that Hoyt was going to try to rob them. Hoyt hadn't told them that he was bringing other people to his house and it made him nervous, so he grabbed Peter and pushed him to the ground. Peter said he felt someone hit him on the head with a gun and pressed the barrel into his back while he was on the ground. This was later backed up by a laceration on his head and circular marks on his back which were observed by law enforcement. That caused Hoyt to go crazy, according to Paige Vowell's later interview. The amplified paranoia, along with the confusion, caused the entire unit to erupt into violence. Patrick, Stan, and David began fighting with Hoyt, with at least one of them hitting Hoyt with a hammer. Hoyt wouldn't back down and fought for his life briefly before a gunshot rang out. 
Peter would later say he heard Patrick trying to justify the shooting, saying Hoyt grabbed the barrel of his gun. The attackers wrapped Peter up in duct tape and began questioning him, wanting to know who he had come there with. He told them that one friend, DeAndre, was with him, but he had stayed out in the car. They released Peter and told him to go outside and get rid of DeAndre, but when Peter went out there, his friend had already left. The other two men who had arrived in the Gold Explorer with Hoyt were also gone. When he went back inside, he saw the four men wrapping Hoyt up in sheets and plastic. The attackers had taken all of Hoyt's belongings and put them in a plastic bag in the backyard. Peter would later say that he believed the plan was to burn the belongings. Peter also overheard them making a plan to take Hoyt's body out to a friend's property in Monticello, cover it in lye, and bury it. It seemed that they planned on bringing Peter with them to help. The group took Peter's personal effects, including his ID, and told him that now they knew where he lived. They threatened to kill him if he told anybody about the incident. After that, Patrick and David pulled everything out of the trunk of Peter's Toyota Camry and loaded Hoyt's body inside. David drove Peter's car, with Peter and Patrick riding as passengers. Before they could start heading to Monticello, Peter convinced them to take him to his house where he could get them money. The greedy murderers took the bait and drove to Peter's house where they parked one street over. When he got into his home, he woke up his mother and had her call the police. While David and Patrick were out with Peter, Paige Vowell began cleaning the duplex. She used bleach to clean the blood off the floors and the walls. When Deputy Stowell arrived at Peter's house, he took down the details of what had happened and they reported the car stolen. The deputy attempted to contact Hoyt as a means of verifying the story he was being told. He ended up speaking to Hoyt's mother, who told the deputy that she had seen her son the previous day at around 7pm. She said she thought she heard him leave with some friends after she went to bed and she hadn't seen him since. Detectives got a search warrant for 2685 Mission Road, which was owned by Paige Briggs, and talked to the resident of the duplex's other unit. He said that he heard an altercation, including yelling at about 10.30 the previous evening, but the insulation between the units was pretty good, so he couldn't hear exactly what was being said. The duplex was in a state of disrepair. The roofing was missing on the right side, and there was a large construction dumpster in the driveway. It seemed that the previous January, a tree had fallen on the right side of the duplex and repairs were underway. But based on the crime scene photos, the residents weren't what you would call clean freaks. A deputy noticed a pair of black latex gloves and what appeared to be the cardboard tube from a roll of duct tape on the ground by the mailbox. When Detective Chris Jacobs arrived with the warrant, investigators entered the residence and immediately noticed a strong smell of bleach. When luminol was sprayed to determine the presence of blood in the home, the living room lit up like a Christmas tree. The floor, the walls, the curtains, and the couch all showed the presence of blood. The luminol lit up the bathroom as well. There were physical bloodstains in the bedroom as well as a gun that was found inside a backpack with ammunition. They also found a bulletproof vest in the kitchen that had been worn by Paige Briggs during the attack. The backyard was filled with garbage, but amongst the rubbish, they found a number of car parts that would have been taken from the trunk of a car. A trunk mat, spare tire, tire iron, and a plastic trunk liner. 
It was determined that they were the items taken out of the trunk of the car Peter was driving. At the same time, maintenance workers from the U-Club Apartments, a complex of off-campus housing near Florida State University, reported seeing a silver Toyota Camry with no rear license plate in the parking lot. When deputies arrived, they found the silver Toyota Camry with a car cover over it. There was no rear license plate and there was blood on the back of the car. When the trunk was forced open, authorities found the body of Hoyt Burge wrapped in plastic. Soon after, investigators learned that Patrick's girlfriend, Brittany Guthrie, lived in one of the units at the complex. Brittany and Patrick were both present at the apartment when detectives arrived and when the unit was searched, they found the packaging from the car cover as well as the license plate from the Camry and loose ammunition. When Brittany was interviewed, she told investigators that Patrick had told her earlier that day that someone was planning to rob them. It seemed as though the entire group was under the impression that Hoyt was planning to rob them, a fear that was probably compounded when Hoyt arrived with various other people in two different vehicles. Brittany said that she picked up Patrick later that day and took him to a Walmart where he purchased Tupperware containers and saw blades. She said he went to the garden center and asked for something, but she couldn't hear what it was. Stanley would later say in his interview that he thought Patrick was asking about muriatic acid. While they were shopping, Brittany saw blood on the back of Patrick's shirt. When they were done at Walmart, she gave him a ride back to Paige's house. Brittany was initially held as an accessory, but was eventually released. On May 11th, Brittany informed investigators that she found a gun in her bathroom closet. When a detective arrived at her apartment to pick it up, he found it in the closet under some shoes on a shelf. She said it wasn't hers and she was sure it wasn't there prior to the murder. The medical examiner found a gunshot entry wound in Hoyt's right upper arm, which exited the back of his arm and entered the right side of his chest. The bullet exited his lower back. There were other injuries such as a cut on the left side of his head that had peeled some skin back, a blunt force injury to the back of his head, and a circular bruise on his back. The medical examiner determined that the cause of death was the gunshot wound. Multiple people involved in the murder were rounded up by authorities. Paige Briggs and David Howard both refused to speak without a lawyer. When Stan was interviewed, he claimed that he had been there during the time of the attack, but swore that he didn't hit Hoyt and that he didn't have a gun. Unfortunately for him, Vicky had told detectives during her interview that Stan did have a gun and that he did hit Hoyt. When the detective told Stan what his girlfriend had said, he admitted that someone had handed him a gun but he put it down and continued to deny that he hit Hoyt. He said that he only put his hands on him in order to try to get him on the ground. He said he knew that things would escalate if Hoyt continued fighting and was trying to get him on the ground for his own safety. After Hoyt was shot, Stan said that he got a towel and put it on his gunshot wound and Vicky tried to do CPR, but Paige Briggs threatened to kill her if she didn't get away from the body. Stan and Vicky wanted to leave, but Paige wouldn't let them. Like Peter, it seemed that he wanted Stan to help dispose of the body. He told Stan to go clean out the trunk of his car so they could put Hoyt in it, but when Stan and Vicky went out to the car, they just took off. It seemed at that point, Paige changed his plan to use Peter's car. 
investigators were developing a clearer picture of what had happened at the duplex that day. It was clear that all four men, Patrick, Paige, Stan, and David, were expecting some sort of robbery attempt from Hoyt. It wasn't clear where they got that idea, and Peter told them that he didn't get any indication from Hoyt that that was the plan. The attackers had guns ready, and Paige had even donned a bulletproof vest, despite there being no evidence that Hoyt was ever armed. When the fight broke out, Patrick fired a single shot from a rifle that killed Hoyt. When Patrick was brought in for questioning, he immediately denied even being at the scene. But whatever happened last night, I wasn't around anything. You were, though. I, I, unfortunately, I didn't know things. That, I, I didn't know anything else. What do you know now? All I know is a car was stolen. Patrick told investigators that he had been with his girlfriend the whole day and that all he had heard was a car had been stolen. According to Patrick, he wasn't involved in the car theft. At this point, investigators know a lot of details, so Patrick's story isn't even close to being believable. He immediately begins adjusting the details. Okay, but how do you know that car was stolen? Because it was uh, pretty obvious that it was stolen when there was tape outside. Tape outside of where? The tape. I looked out my window and there was a little tape across that. Mm -hmm. And then it didn't make no sense. I put two and two together. Why do you really need, why do you really need a drop cloth, you know, put over your car when it looks like that? And I woke up at about 6, 6.30. And I went back to bed. Okay. Where did David go when she came back? You helped him put the like, sheet over it? Like, what? Yeah, I did. Okay. I did. I even bought it for him. Okay. And I didn't, you know, like, uh, I got that vibe after that, you know, I mean, what? I didn't know I was putting my shit up on a stolen car. Now, Patrick admitted to having purchased the car cover, but didn't know that the car was stolen at the time. He also told the detectives that he had to get his Xanax on the street now, which is why he doesn't remember stuff. The section of the video where he explained why he had to get his Xanax on the street was redacted. After denying knowing anything about the murder, his story changed again. He pulled up in the trunk or something. Who pulled up in the trunk? Yeah. Who's him? Um, freaking David. David? Uh, sorry, he pulled up where? After he was already at the complex, he pulled up in the trunk. Mm -hmm. I don't know what for. Uh, I was, like I said, I was drunk. But he pulled it. I looked and I... How was that? What was it? The body. Or the body? Who was it? Everybody knows him. I've met him maybe three times. His name is uh, Hoyt. Hoyt? Hoyt. You know what did David say about it? He didn't really have much to say. Did you touch him? No, I don't touch him. Well, and, and, and that's 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 what I'm saying. That's that's what we want to eliminate you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And that's why when you brought that up, and I just thought about no, if, yeah. if I, I just like I just like I'm not the type of person that like if I see that like 
oh yeah, go park and visit her, let me help you here. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's just like not how I am, even though I knew it was a very horrible, like not a very good person. And, well, and that's what we want to do. If you didn't touch anything in the trunk, you didn't touch him, then, I mean, you're telling me your DNA is not going to be on him. Mm-hmm. That's why I'd like to get this. Absolutely. Okay, I just wanted you, I just, you know, all right. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to be as honest as I can, but like without like, you know, getting myself hurt or getting yeah. hurt or getting something. And that's why I explain to everyone what DNA is. You're being as honest as you can. That's why your story has already changed multiple times. You're flat out lying about being involved. The detectives had already been told by multiple people that Patrick pulled the trigger by another victim and people who were his friends. When stories by multiple unrelated parties match, it usually means it's fairly accurate. This is what the detectives were told by Paige Vowell. Paige just was holding, holding Pete down, trying to figure out what was going on, and Hoyt was just going crazy. And uh, Stan, and because I'm being really honest, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I feel really bad for, for Hoyt. It shouldn't have happened like that if it was. Anyway, this white started going crazy. Steam was grabbing them all over the place, and it literally had spread across a soul fucking white's ear. Ear, like dangling or something, and I tried to get them to stop, but that point was going crazy. He was like jumping around all over the place, and then the next thing you know, I hear a fucking gunshot. Through her crocodile tears, Paige told the investigators that her boyfriend was holding Peter down while the other guys were fighting Hoyt. And then there was a gunshot and she says, quote, I didn't think Pat hit him. Of course, now we know he did. The detective even clarified exactly who shot Hoyt. Who had the gun? Fucking Pat. He had a big ass gun. A pink gun. And he shot him. He shot him. Do you know where he shot him? Yes, because really I wanted to try and save his life. I told him we needed to call the cops. We needed to call the cops. My phone doesn't work. It does not work. I was like, we need to call the cops, he's about to die. Like, he's about to die. And then he was dead. Patrick spent hours being interviewed, and his story never stopped changing. He finally admitted that he was at the duplex at the time of the shooting, but he claimed that he was in the kitchen. I didn't hear anything. I just heard a shock, man. Before, you said that Hoyt was dead before he was shot, too. Absolutely. So how was he reaching for the gun if he was dead? This guy was, like, you couldn't even see his face. He just, he just, like, last little, like, power that he had. Like, his mouth is open. So if you saw that, how didn't you see the gun go off? If you saw him on the ground and you saw his last movement reach for the gun, how didn't you see it go off? I saw his face when I walked over to the kitchen. And I was explained why it happened. But you just told me his last, the last amount of strength he had was to reach for that gun. Yes. So how do you know that? Because that was, because that happened. 
But if you weren't there, how do you know the gunshot didn't kill him? This is the living room. This is a little hallway. This is where he was. I'm in the kitchen with the girls. Okay, so did you see him reach for the gun? I was, I was told that. So now you're told that. Well, why did you tell me that? I saw, I saw, I saw some movement there, man. That's all, I, I know I saw some movement there. So you saw who was standing over him with the gun? No, it wasn't really a thing. Why are you distancing yourself from that? Why do you keep going? Why are you, why are you trying to accuse me of that? So I want to know what happened. But I've told you everything that's happened. His story is all over the place. He's trying to make stuff up on the fly, and he's absolutely terrible at it. He claimed that Hoyt was dead before he got shot, but that he saw Hoyt reach for the gun as he got shot. Then he claimed that someone told him that Hoyt reached for the gun. He claimed that he didn't see anything, but said he saw Hoyt get shot. Nothing he says makes sense, and parts of his story contradict other parts of his own story. The detectives know what happened. Patrick Borain, David Howard, Paige Briggs, and Paige Vowell were the first four to be officially charged with the murder of Hoyt Burge. The charges included first-degree murder, kidnapping, carjacking, possession of a firearm during a felony, and false imprisonment. Eventually, Stanley West was arrested and indicted on similar charges, while Vicki Strickland was charged with accessory after the fact. Paige Vowell was the first to go on trial, where the prosecutor laid out evidence that Paige lured Hoyt to the duplex under the guise of buying drugs in order for her boyfriend and his friends to attack him. She set in motion the events that led to his death. She was found guilty of first-degree murder and kidnapping. She was sentenced to life in prison. Patrick Borain, Paige Briggs, David Howard, and Stanley West were all found guilty of third-degree murder and two counts of false imprisonment. Patrick and David were also found guilty of theft, while Paige was also found guilty of assault. Patrick was sentenced to 50 years, Paige was sentenced to 45 years, and both David and Stan were sentenced to 30 years in prison. Vicki Strickland was found not guilty of accessory after the fact, as there was no proof that she knew anything about the plan to attack Hoyt and didn't assist in cleanup or disposal of the body. Brittany Guthrie was charged and pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact for lying to the investigators during her interview. Since she wasn't involved with the murder or cleanup of the crime, she was sentenced to five years of probation. These people took a life based on complete paranoia. Hoyt was said to be a friendly guy who was always willing to help out when others needed a hand. A group of drug-addicted paranoid monsters ended up attacking and killing him over nothing. 
If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.